Maggie Hennefeld is an assistant professor of cultural studies and comparative literature at the University of Minnesota Twin Cities. Her research focuses on comedy, gender politics, and silent cinema, and her book Specters of Slapstick and Silent Film Comedians is forthcoming from Columbia University Press, March 2018. She has written an article entitled Laughter in the Age of Trump for Flow, is that Flow Magazine or Flow? Flow, Flow Media website? Journal. Media Journal, and that's what we're going to discuss. Thanks for joining us. Thanks so much for having me. I'd like to start at the end of that article that you've written, and we'll post that on our, our website so people can read it. I'll just quote the very last sentence here. Whatever revolution we wage on the ground in the classroom through our social media networks and toward the voting booths, it cannot, it must not exclude the critical analysis and imaginative practice of comedy. And I'll just add to that a definition from Daniel Defoe, who said <laughs> that the end of satire is reform. So how is comedy going to help us deal with the Trump administration? That's a great question. I mean, satire, as opposed to other forms of comedy, is about changing society, right? It's the use of comedy as a form of pointed criticism to affect social change and kind of hold a mirror up to society. And talking about comedy, thinking about comedy in the context of Trump is sort of unavoidable. I mean, his candidacy basically started as a joke. The, the White House Correspondents' Dinner, when Obama mocked him uh, yeah, he while was... he was in the audience vis-a-vis -vis the, you know, birther conspiracy, and a number of comedians sort of dared Trump to run because, mm. you know, he well, was just seen as a clown. He was, I think he was furious about the way he was ridiculed by uh, Obama. He's extremely thin-skinned. I mean, he, he can't take a joke, and he's completely paranoid about being laughed at. Just the language he uses when he pulled out of the Paris Climate Accord, mm -hmm. he said that it would make America the laughing stock of the world. And, mm -hmm. you know, his attorney general, Jeff Sessions, tried to criminalize a woman, send her to jail for a year, this feminist protester, Desiree Farouz, for laughing out loud at his um, Senate confirmation hearings for attorney general. She faced up to a year in prison and $2,000 in fines for laughing when Senator Shelby was kind of commending Sessions' record. And, and eventually the charges were dropped because you can't criminalize female laughter. That's absurd. Mm -hmm. But they're extremely paranoid about laughter. And I think in a sense, that paranoia, the fact that Trump always takes the bait, you know, whether it's Alec Baldwin impersonating him on Saturday Night Live or, you know, Rosie O'Donnell or Bill Maher tweeting about him, uh, Trump can't not react. Mm -hmm. So even, I think, you know, Saturday Night Live, a show like that, it is satirical. I don't see it as a very pointed form of satire. I mm -hmm. see it as more kind of like mainstream, uh, safe jokes about celebrities, personality tics. It's, it's more in the safe realm of laughter. It's not eviscerating satire. Mm -hmm. But even Saturday Night Live feels charged right now just because of how strongly Trump reacts to it. It makes even Milk's toast satire feel subversive because it's affecting this kind of strong reaction from the authoritarian leader. The interesting thing about Saturday Night Live and other uh, comic shows and comedians that point jokes at, at Trump is that 
He's got such a, a kind of a hardcore support of mm -hmm. maybe 30% of the population. Yeah, they're about. Probably 30, 40% of Americans aren't going to find that funny. They're going to find it aggressive or insulting or... Or just not watch it. Liberal, yeah. put forward by the opposition, the liberal left media. So how do you... And they're, <laughs> they're the ones that you need to get to with satire, to get them to change their mind, because the rest of the population can't believe that he's in power. It's true. I mean, it's a good point. I think there's an extent to which the, those 30-something percent are just unreachable. I mean, in the context of truthiness, the, the comedian Stephen Colbert once once put it, that uh, tr truth has a notoriously liberal slant. And as much as satire has the power to reach out across these sort of ideological divisions through kind of ambiguity, indirection, uh, confusion about who even is the butt of the joke and who's sort of the laughing spectator who's in on the joke. But the 30-something percent of ardent Trump supporters, I don't even know if they watch or interact with this media. I mean, mm. uh, it's not just that our country is politically divided, it's ideologically divided in terms of the media that we even consume. We have all of these uh, social media echo chambers, you know. The folks who watch Fox News and who read Breitbart are not going to watch MSNBC, CNN, they're not going to read, as Trump would put it, the failing New York Times and the yeah. failing Washington Post. So he's, got, yeah, he's very good with labels and name-calling, isn't he? He really is. It's yeah. probably his greatest talent. I think yeah. he's mastered the art of the tweet. My favorite nickname for him is um, Twitler. To that point, though, I mean, satire, like I was saying, it does sort of have the capacity to to travel in ways that, you know... Uh, more blunt messaging doesn't, like Rachel Maddow or even Samantha Bee, no one, you know, no Breitbart reader is, is going to watch that. But I remember back in the day, like the early years of the Colbert Report and when Stort was hosting The Daily Show, I feel like conservatives, they did watch those cable news satire, right, when fake news meant The Daily Show and The Colbert Report and not literally everything. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, Colbert would have, like, Democratic uh, members of Congress or liberal commentators on for the interview, and, and he was sort of indiscriminately mocking, or he, was, he used humor to get at a kind of hypocrisy that transcended certain partisan ideological divisions. And I think that kind of satire did have leg. It could reach people, mm -hmm. you know, who weren't already, you know, steeped in one position or the other. And I wonder if we still have that. I wonder if we're starting to lose that. In my mind, there's an enormous distinction between Colbert Report Colbert and uh, the current Colbert who hosts, you know, his own late night comedy show. And I'm thinking of his opening monologue at the Emmys this year mm -hmm. when he brought um, Trump's former press secretary, Sean Spicer, on stage to sort of be in on the joke of his own complicity with all of these horrible things the administration was doing. And to me, that was sad. That was just, you know, cynical laughter, uh, the laughter of disavowal. You know, it just sort of gratifies the ego of kind of smug laughing spectator and doesn't affect change. It doesn't make you confront your own position or complicity in the system that you're laughing at or against. Well, there's a quote that I came up with about satire targeting pride and foolishness that afflicts all humanity mm -hmm. as opposed to having it, using it as a political 
tool to, to fight the opposition. So it, seem, it seems to me if you're using it as some kind of political tool, it may not be as effective. Uh, that's a really good point. I think that it's possible to use satire as a political tool while simultaneously, what, what was the way you put it? Satire targets kind of pride and foolishness that afflicts all humanity. I'm trying to think of a good example. It's not very effective in my mind when we just use satire to mock the opposition without mm. sort of confronting our own involvement in this system that just perpetuates inequality and foolishness left and right. I, I don't think sat- Saturday Night Live satire really gets at that because it's an easy kind of laughter. It's it like is, a yeah. laughter that just sort of, if you're on board with it in the first place, it doesn't kind of force you to think about your own position in relation to what you're laughing at. I think that that's a lot of what satire is about, though. It's hymn singing. Satire preaches to uh, the converted community like hymn singing. There is something kind of potentially spiritual or revelatory about satire. Good satire makes you transform your own beliefs, even if you thought you knew what you were laughing at in advance. What you take away is different than what you came in with. Mm. I really like satire that's sort of based on hoax or mockumentary. Do you know the the prankster group, the Yes Men? There have been a few documentaries about them. They often impersonate multinational corporations like the World Trade Organization or Shell Oil. They're kind of prankster impersonators. There's a scene in their original documentary from about 10 years ago where they impersonate a, a spokesperson for the corporation McDonald's and another a kind of a representative of the World Trade Organization. And they give a, a presentation to high school students about how McDonald's wants to repurpose the defecation of first world consumers and process this shit and repackage it to serve it as food to people in developing countries. Mm-hmm. And there's this kind of extended scatological infographic about how this process will play out and the high schoolers are just completely befuddled they they can't believe it but they're so energized by how grotesque this parody is because they believe this presentation to be real and you know from their vantage point their principal has come in and told them this is a real presentation Mm. they have no sort of context for saying like oh this is just a joke and i think when there's an some kind of ambiguity about framing or just an uncertainty about what What's the relationship between truth and fakery surrounding this sort of satire or parody? I think I think that can be affected for, you know, holding this broader light up to foolishness and pride and vanity beyond uh, the instrumentalization of satire as a political weapon. Like I'm thinking of Jonathan Swift's modest classic proposal. modest yeah. proposal mm-hmm. where, you know, he, he proposed that the Irish overpopulation starvation crises could be solved by eating babies, yeah. eating the babies of poor people. Yeah, putting them in a stew. Putting them in a stew, yeah, mm-hmm. and he had a very, um, it could have been a, a, the language from a cookbook, it sounded like a delicious mm-hmm. stew the yeah. way he described yeah. it. Yeah. But the, the modest, a modest proposal circulated as a pamphlet, so I think yeah. it's it And people took it seriously, and there was quite a bit of outrage. Yeah. yeah. So, let's get this back to Trump. Again, if we want reform, and uh, I said the whole premise is that, that there's something severely wrong with the system that allows someone like this to become president. Mm -hmm. What specifically can activists do with humor to achieve their, their goals? 
so many things, and I think they have been. First of all, get attention. I mean, I, I find activists make great use of humorous wordplay in their protest signs. Like, I loved some of the signs at the Women's March, which was the biggest uh, mass protest in the history of the country. It was, it, and, and globally, it was a phenomenal success, and it made me feel so much better. Yeah. We marched in St. Paul, but... So, you know, women dressing up as suffragettes with a sign, um, same shit, different century, you know, they're so, so humor, it commands attention and it gets covered. You know, if you don't want your protest to be ignored, humor is a good way to generate visibility. I think beyond activism on the ground, I mean, think of the way the comedian Jimmy Kimmel took on the Republicans' uh, health care bill, basically their mm. attempt to dismantle Obamacare, and not just in terms of like using satire to critique. No, he didn't use satire. He just said, look at my, wasn't it, was this one of his family members that he, would be affected yeah. adversely? I mean, he, but, but uh, kind of, he came at it on all levels. He appealed to um, emotional empathy, political common sense, but also used satire simultaneously and was making more persuasive policy points than some of the Republican, most of the Republican members of the Senate. Yeah. So I think satire, it's, it's not necessarily helpful to think of satire in opposition to all of these other discourses so much as just acknowledging the extent to which they're interpenetrated. Like you can be satirical and be earnest, you know, emotionally earnest and uh, rhetorically persuasive simultaneously. And mm -hmm. I think just letting satire do that kind of work across these different discourses could maybe help us get achieve some of these reforms. I, I think uh, John Oliver and Samantha Bee both do it very well. Use satire's reductio ad absurdum, exaggerate an already illogical argument, take it to its kind of absurdist conclusions to, to dismantle it. I think that can be very effective. Successful satire needs to be grounded in earnestness. It's a way of awakening those who are falling asleep in their <laughs> errors, jerking them awake. Yeah. I'll just go to the beginning of your article now, where you say the effect of laughter on electoral politics, did it enable Trump's rise amid a pathologically entertaining political media landscape? Yes. <laughs> I mean, there's no doubt that Trump's viral visibility as a buffoon gave him millions, if not billions of dollars in free ad time and publicity. And do is it this article or another article that I open with the quotes from John it's Oliver? It's this one, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. Here it is. The night before the election, John Oliver said, It's frankly hard to believe there was ever a time when people thought a Trump candidacy would be funny. But there was such a time. And then he played a clip of himself on The Daily Show from 2013 in response to news reports that the reality television star Donald Trump is considering a run for the White House. Do it. Do it. Look at me. Do it. So Trump's candidacy never would have gotten off the ground if everyone who would have thought that in reality his, his presidency would be abhorrent hadn't kind of added fuel to the flame through laughter. We laughed him into the White House. There was so many people that thought it was a joke that, that, that they didn't take him seriously enough and there suddenly he wins. It's both. It's that we, we disavowed how, for, for example, how many Americans are actually white supremacists or are willing to vote for 
a white supremacist yeah, and sexual predator? I mean, there, that's, that's one way of looking at it. But another way is he was going to cut taxes, and that's got that a lot of rich white people voted for him because because of that. I, I think it's not just the economic determinism, and as we now know from the tax plan that the House just voted for and the Senate is now debating who it's like the one percent who are getting their tax mm-hmm. their taxes cut this this plan it's a it's it's a tax increase for the middle class over the course of however many years so yeah there is the kind of economic argument plus there's a huge deficit that's going to ring up too oh yeah it's ridiculous mm-hmm. it's, i mean this is this is a whole other it's a whole other issue but yeah mm-hmm. that the kind of runaway um economic inequality uh, that that's just you know been incre- getting worse and worse every year because of this this neoliberal um, system that we have and its its inability to govern has no doubt created a climate that's inflamed all of these other sorts of uh, social and cultural antagonisms that Trump exploited mm-hmm. in his campaign like all of the the race baiting partisan language that he used to divide keep the people divided but to get back to your original question it's both that because we saw him as a joke. We didn't take him seriously, but also we allowed him to get big. Laughing at him just gave him more visibility, more of a presence. I mean, he like I feel like I can't have a conversation without Trump getting coming up now. Mm-hmm. Everything refers back to Trump. You know, in the, the Middle Ages, everything referred back to God and, and the afterlife and the kind of religious eschatology. Now everything refers back to Trump. We can't have a conversation without talking about Trump. And it's partly because he's so absurd. You know, it's, it's like driving past a train wreck. You have to stop and rubberneck. You can't resist the temptation mm-hmm. to look. That's how I see Trump. Well, it's interesting because part of what satire is about is isolating absurdity mm-hmm. and yet it's, it's not very hard to isolate this yeah is it? it's just there every time he tweets yeah it's it's really confusing that's such a good point i mean now for whatever we mean by fake news now it used to mean satire you know around the election we reached the point when i could no longer tell the difference often between an onion article and a new york mm. times report and i play mm. this game i teach a class on on comedy here at the university of minnesota and now we do a unit on fake news from satire to disinformation to just kind of profiteering clickbait and i have them i show them um three news articles one is a like an onion article or something from the borrowitz report one's a real news headline and the other is just disinformation you know alternative facts and to see if they can tell the difference and often they can or at least they can persuasively uh, explain why they think you know one is satire and the other is real or whatever um, but for example i saw an article in the washington post last summer about the surprising number of Americans who believe that chocolate milk comes from brown cows. And it's over 7, 7% of uh, milk-drinking Americans. And, you know, what? The, the, how is that not an Onion article? Re- the reality, just simply describing reality is, is mm-hmm. insanely absurd. Mm-hmm. Satire now has the further burden of just disentangling itself from how inherently satirical describing the truth in the first place has become. Yeah, so it makes it more difficult to use satire then. It's slippery. Yeah. yeah, it can be. Using satire 
well is always inherently difficult. But yeah. the, I think our comedians are up to the task. Mm. I kind of trust the satirists more than journalistic news media, at least, you know, the kind of cable news talking heads. There, we reached a turning point, maybe it was around George W. Bush, Bush years when Colbert was first coining the term uh, truthiness in response to the Iraq War and people like Hannity um, and Glenn Beck on, on Fox News, where I, I was more likely to believe in the truth of a news report if it, if it was somehow uh, slightly satirical or comical. Like, to laugh is to believe mm-hmm. more so mm-hmm. than to find uh, a fact-based reporting credible. Satire is persuasive, and often we were willing to believe something because we had wanted to do so in the first place. Here's something I didn't quite get, and you, t- you say uh, the, the uh, U.S. culture in recent years has suffered from rampant depoliticization. Yeah. And then in the next sentence you go on to say that you talk about the Super Bowl ratings of the 2006 presidential debate and politics as a spectator sport. Yeah. So are you saying that fewer people are getting involved and more people are just sort of seeing this as entertainment? I think from that, at that point, and so I wrote this when Trump was president-elect. It was kind of uh, me sort of sublimating my melancholia after Mm -hmm. the election. Mm -hmm. Uh, I do think that Trump has provoked a massive activist repoliticization of American culture where we're fighting for our lives, we're fighting to defend our civic institutions that had become gutted in various ways over the last years through apathy and just a lack of involvement of citizens in these core sorts of institutions associated with safeguarding the social safety net. I think that that metaphor, uh, way of referring to the, the debates by way of their super, uh, super bowl size ratings, it's revealing of how much politics has become just a game, you know? It's, mm. uh, you watch the cable news show, you identify with the most to see some token Republican be taken to task by a panel of liberal commentators or vice versa if you're a Fox News viewer. And I think that's not political. I mean, and this goes back to your earlier point about how do we get at the 30-something percent that supports Trump. I don't know that we do. I think we get at the almost 50 percent of voting Americans who stayed home, who thought for one reason or another they didn't have a horse in this race. Winning an election, I think, is more about turning out your base than persuading, you know, the, the mythical centrist voting soccer mom who could swing either way mm-hmm. why were so people so many people apathetic about a, an election where there was so much at stake that they stayed home or or were disenfranchised you know the, the gutting of the voting rights act by the supreme court this was the first presidential election since that happened the fact that we were fighting for health care that citizens were showing up at town hall meetings to debate health care that that's huge um, all of the you know increased activism and protests that we've that we've seen since Trump's election I see that as uh, actually a very healthy sign of the repoliticization of American citizenship since since the election and against these these sort of troubling trends that we'd observed beforehand you point to comedy as revealing the emperor has no clothes. Satire defeats fear with laughter. And here's Swift. He says, It is as hard to satirize well a man of distinguished vices 
as to praise well a man of distinguished virtues. Do we think that Trump is a man of distinguished vices? Well, it depends on what we what we mean by distinguished. If it means easy to identify, mm-hmm. perhaps yes, but distinguished also conveys this sense of something to be proud of. <laughs> Trump, no one loves his own symptoms more than Trump, or no one loves his own vices more than Trump. Mm. Yeah, I mean, um, I, I think Swift is, is on to something there. You know, what do you accomplish by um, satirizing a man who's basically a self-parody? You know, it's it's easy. It doesn't take great insight to, you know, point out, like, for example, why is Trump in this kind of puerile insult war with the dictator of North Korea who's developing the country's nuclear weapons? It's, yeah, I don't know what satire really achieves in, in that specific context. What was your original question about about that swift quotation? I feel like you, you asked a question and it, it slipped my mind. No, I think I was just quoting uh, mm-hmm. some of the th- some of the things that you'd said about satire in in the article, and then I just added swift. But maybe we could look at a statement that you make. Trump can't take a joke precisely because he <laughs> is a joke. What do you mean by that? Well, I mean, it goes back to some of the things we were discussing earlier about how comedy sort of fueled his visibility and made him credible for all of the people who are offended, how absurd most of the country finds him. He's paranoid about about being laughed at, and he's become the linchpin of this war about who gets to decide what's funny. You know, your laughter is my injury. The point of the satire, right, literally the invective of satire has always had this kind of like bellicose or warlike rhetoric in certain tribal societies in Ireland, in the Arabic world, the satire, the satire was actually in Ireland used to levy taxes when the point of the sword failed. To cast a satirical invective against someone was to impugn their honor, destroy them in a way that could potentially be avenged only with death. And, you know, Aristotle talks about jesting as witty contumely. Um, you know, we, we laugh at someone else's pain. It's laughter, mockery is a way of asserting our superiority over someone else. Hobbes talks about laughter as, as a, a tactic in you know, this kind of uh, state of nature. It's, it's, it's an instrument of war. It's an instrument of battle. Well, that's exactly what he does by belittling uh, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. in North Korea. Oh, yeah, it's, exactly. It's, it's a joke that's, that, that's potentially going to launch a nuclear holocaust. And what do you do about this dangerous, nearly cataclysmic instrumentalization of laughter, uh, whether it's just kind of cheap mockery, like Trump making fun of the reporter with a disability, or, you know, pointed satire, um, the, the satire that speaks truth to power. I'm just thinking about uh, all of the comedians who have been exposed in the wake of this hashtag MeToo scandal for their sexual predation. And now we have questions about the social politics of who gets to decide what is funny. Like, for example, Louis C.K., making jokes about self-masturbation seemed edgy until, you know, we learned that he actually, you know, masturbates in front of women without their consent. Laughter always has, it's a way of reinforcing 
uh, social power and laughing against the grain of social power, it's not just dangerous, it's difficult. For example, when women try to laugh against the patriarchy, they're called feminist killjoys, or their laughter is actually dismissed as itself humorless because it runs counter to frat boy edgy humor or whatever. So I think part of the question of how whether satire will just you know start nuclear holocaust with North Korea or whether it will speak truth to power and affect these kinds of activist reforms that are actually hopeful is a war that we're fighting on the ground on the level of comedy and it has to do with these sorts of micro politics of humor whether humor can serve marginalized communities whether communities can mobilize laughter towards their own interests and well-being or if if we're only able to find satire funny, even if it's satire that's against Trump, if it's also satire that more or less reinforces existing power and social dynamics, I, I don't think it will be able to do that work. Why not? Because it doesn't get at structural change. Again, it's just sort of making Trump the placeholder for everything that's unjust about our society. It's like mm-hmm. we can't, the Democrats can't just run on an anti-Trump platform. We need an inspiring message that empowers people of color, women, queer, transgender people, the working class. We need a kind of intersectional satire that explodes existing hierarchies of power that really runs counter to everything that's oppressive about our society, unjust about our society on so Mm. many levels, and Mm. doesn't just say, ha-ha, you authoritarian buffoon, you're a mad king, go away. Because, yeah, we can get rid of... Trump, and we will eventually, you know, he'll... He's... Well, that's the whole thing that got him in there, wasn't it? This, uh, this mm-hmm. desire to drain the swamp, all the corruption that's, that's in the system. Mm-hmm. But the problem is that just as many people think that Clinton is part of that yeah. corrupt system as, as anyone else. And that's, the, you know, that's a right-wing tactic to confuse people. Any dirt you have on them, relativize it by saying, oh, the other side is just as bad, just as corrupt, just as hypocritical. Mm. You know, forget the Russia investigation. Look at this Clinton Uranium One scandal. Mm. I mean, in certain ways, they're still running against Hillary Clinton. I think one of the GOP's biggest identity crises is that they no longer have Hillary Clinton. I know. They want to continue the election, don't they? Just... Keep it going. Keep the it. election's never ended. We're still traumatized. It's a national trauma. It's never going to go away. You say comedy by allowing us to laugh at the unlaughable. Mm. And this is Ralph Ellison. Quote, calms the clammy trembling that ensues when we pierce the veil of conventions that guard us from the basic absurdity of the human condition. He is such a great writer. I just gush over his language every time I read his work. Yeah, that's from an essay in his collected works called An Extravagance of Laughter that he wrote in New York in the uh, 1950s. He's reflecting on an experience that he had at a play, seeing a play in Harlem, uh, Erskine Caldwell play, Tobacco Road, about these poor uh, southern white uh, sharecroppers during the Great Depression in Georgia. And the protagonist of the play is just like a total racist buffoon, Lester Jeter, who he he wants to get rid of his son-in-law so he can steal his most prized possession, which is a bag of turnips. And, you know, the incest runs rampant in the play. And, And it's just kind of a grotesque exaggeration of all of the 
racist, white supremacist hypocrisy, you know, the basic absurdity of the human condition that Ellison had experienced when he was undergraduate at the Tuskegee Institute in Alabama, where, you know, he talks about being on a bus and being pulled over by the police. And there was a black student on the bus whose last name was White, spelled W-H-Y-T-E. And the police, you know, thought it was the funniest thing in the world that there was a black guy whose last name was White. And they were basically brutalizing him to intimidate him into disavowing his name because how could he possibly be named White? And he talks about the homeopathic powers of laughter. Ellison and his classmates would go back to campus and they would laugh off their trauma and devastation as the fundamental absurdity of the human condition, because it was safe to laugh in that space, whereas if they had laughed at the bus, you know, they might have been lynched by the police. So he's in this play in Harlem, and not to say that There isn't, you know, rampant racism in 1950s New York City, but there are different sort of codes. It manifested itself in different ways in that society. So he was allowed to laugh in that space where he wouldn't have been able to laugh in the Jim Crow South. And he talks about it as a veritable burst and dam of laughter where he just exploded. And he's describing his own position as fundamentally divided between his uncontrollable gushing forth of laughter and his simultaneous awareness of himself as this absurdly laughing body in an audience where everyone is just increasingly staring at him and not watching the play because it's, my God, what's going on? But there was a deep longing and kind of latent trauma that's just exploding out of his body in the theater. And it gets at, you know, his fundamentally divided self. And that's what satirical laughter does to us as a laughing spectator. It sort of liberates the divided aspects of our personality Mm. between um, the thinking subject reflecting on the cause of laughter, what it is, what is it that I'm finding funny, what does this mean that I'm laughing at it? Yeah, why am I laughing? Why am I laughing? And then just the visceral body that's reacting, you know, maybe the body that is going to use this laughter to fuel activism on the ground and all of these kinds of reformist changes that we want. But yeah, everyone should read that essay by Ellison. It's it's really powerful and I think gets at the power of satire better than almost any other text. It's that mm-hmm. anti-racist satire. What's it called again? Uh, An Extravagance of Laughter, and it's in his collected works. German film theorist Walter Benjamin talks about laughter, particularly at violent cartoons. Laughter is an inoculation against mass psychosis. Mm-hmm. You know, we have all of this kind of pent-up nervous energy that we're dealing with, you know, mm-hmm. that we, we kind of keep inside ourselves. Laughter does have this remedial power just... <laughs> keep us all from going completely insane and, you know, being even more destructive in our activity than we were in the first place. I think laughter is a vital form of relief and release in addition to doing all these other things, Uh, being a warlike tactic um, and speaking truth to power. Laughter is extremely complex in its utility and, and, and meaning and value. You, toward the end of the article, say that Trump lacks a facility with language (laughs) for wit and humor. That's one thing, and I might disagree with that. I think he's very, very clever with his little monikers and his put-downs, and uh, that's maybe not requiring a huge uh, skill or faculty with language, but he's very capable when it comes to trash-talking and 
I'm sure to some people it's pretty funny. It's tremendous. Sad exclamation yeah. mark. Yeah. Little Marco, low energy Jeb. He he has his way with words that's effective, and there's a sense in which how unfiltered or quote unquote politically incorrect he is reads as a form of honesty or authenticity even though he's basically just selling everyone a bill of goods he's a con artist but he's not i i, I wouldn't describe his his way with words as particularly subtle or ingenious in no. that sense i mean it's the bludgeon versus the scalpel i mean thinking about comedians or someone like Ellison or Swift or John Oliver or Samantha Bee who are so deft with language. I mm. mean, they really uh, know how to massage language to articulate very nuanced for levels of satirical meaning. That's not Trump. I mean, there's a difference between wielding language as a blunt instrument in a way that's effective among your excessively devoted base and yeah. having a, a, a way with words on a more nuanced level. You also say that he has a, I think you quote Al Franken by saying... Oh, Al, yeah. ...that uh, he, he's never seen Trump laugh. Al Franken did have an op-ed, and of course Franken is a former comedian. Mm -hmm. You know, talk about the sexual predation endemic to the comedy world. Franken had uh, an op-ed in, I forget, it might have been in the Times about a year ago, where he observed that he's never seen Trump laugh, and... You know, I'm not, I'm not sure that I have either. Trump is an insult comic. I mean, he is. He makes fun of people. He's probably laughed. I mean, who doesn't laugh? I don't have a vivid image in my mind of, of Trump laughing. Like, But maybe that's just sort of a media trope, like the way, you know, we'd never heard Jared Kushner speak when, when John Oliver pointed out, and then he, he kind of superimposed Gilbert Gottfried's voice over these sort of clip of Kushner, and we're like, yeah, have I ever heard? Mm. Kushner speak? What does his voice? Maybe his voice does sound like Gilbert Gottfried. Mm. Have you ever heard him laugh? Other than just making fun of people? I've heard him taunt. Yeah, I've seen him smile, but I don't know if I've really seen him have a good laugh. But that's just coverage, so you know, I mean, maybe he does laugh when the cameras aren't on. Then you say there's two possibilities for counter laughter. Cynical disavowal mm -hmm. that displaces reality. So you're going to have to explain that. Just the laughter at that at the end of the day makes us feel better about how shitty everything is, but in a way that actively prevents us from confronting it. Um, so that that the sort of smug in, in joke at the Emmys when Sean Spicer came on stage and he's like, "Ha ha ha! Holocaust centers! What a farce!" You know, we're all we're all in on this this terrible joke, but we're not actually going to do anything about it. That's yeah. What I meant about the disavowing laughter that displaces reality and mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. prevents real action on the ground. And then you say there's a satire that changes the rules of reality. Mm. Yeah. What does that mean? Satire that, you know, there, there, there's always an element of imagination or play involved in satire. We laugh at surprise. We laugh at the vision of reality as other than we'd expected or experienced it. And in that sense, satire really does have the power to transform reality. It's a, a way of proposing, look at how the world is. This is how we see it, but it doesn't have to be this way. It can be different. And the level 
on which we're laughing at the, the hopeless corruption and apocalyptic extremes of our society can maybe be a space for re-envisioning what sort of world we want to live in. And, and satire can have a transformative power on that register. Which brings us back to the quote about revolution. Whatever revolution we wage, it must not exclude the practice of comedy. So why must it not? exclude the practice of comedy? I think because if people are too earnest and scrupulously serious, it just becomes exhausting. I think comedy, joy, play, I mean, not only do, you know, funny protest signs generate visibility and get more people involved and excited, but they really sustain the energy. Mm -hmm. If you love what you do, if you have fun and take pleasure in the cause and the, the battles that you're, you know, simultaneously waging, I think uh, it, will, it will sustain the energy. It will make them more powerful and contagious. Laughter is contagious. It will get more people involved in the cause of justice as long as we make sure our laughter is, is really doing the, um, simultaneously the work of advocacy to promote the changes that we want to see, as long as it doesn't become too much just about the pleasure of laughter itself mm -hmm. to the exclusion of the politics that we're envisioning through laughter, then it, it can really affect those changes that we so desperately need. I think the advertisers, good advertisers who use humor, those are the best kind of ads, as long as you remember <laughs> you know, who's who's put the ad together. Exactly. They're memorable. Yeah. Then there's that aspect of comedy that it's just corporatism mm -hmm. or the, the use of comedy for advertising to promote the interests of capitalism. I think we can reappropriate that. We can take laughter back from the, the Budweiser frogs. Just finally then, uh, you mentioned Ellison, Ralph Ellison. Any other classic works of satire or comedy that uh, have affected change that you might point to and recommend as reading? Yeah, I think I've been really interested lately in the theater of the absurd plays by uh, Beckett and Ionesco and Adamoff from kind of confronting the mid-century traumas of World War II and the Holocaust, but also simultaneously the sort of hypocrisy of bourgeois conformism in the in the 1950s, mm. and just absurdism. I don't know if it. If, if the theater of the absurd affected the kind of concrete political changes, activist changes on the ground that we've been talking about, but this absurdism did position itself as an alternative to nihilism or just total desperation, mm. you know, in the wake of all of these sort of ongoing traumas. Like, you know, there's this classic Buñuel film, The Exterminating Angel. It's kind of a critique of um, religious hypocrisy. There are all these bourgeois guests at a dinner party and none of them can leave the room, and they have no idea why. There's no, there's no physical obstacle. They're just paralyzed. There are all these horrible things about our system now. We should be able to change, but in a sense, we're paralyzed, and we don't know what to do about it. And this is kind of the premise of absurdism, of you know Beckett, Ionesco, all of these absurdist writers. Things can't possibly go on as they are. It's unimaginable, but but yet they'll do so. We're trapped in a room, there's nothing stopping us from leaving, and we don't know how to get out. And so what do we do? And I think that absurdist satire can maybe help us think about, on a more existential level, how we can envision 
implementing these kinds of changes that we want to achieve against this this kind of sense of paralysis or even nihilism that's that so seems to take. How does absurdism do that, though? Does it, I mean, it seems to me that that's sort of like a disinterested, kind of a wry look at at the world. There's a sense of helplessness that comes out of it. No, you're saying it's no it, more it, of a, a what? It's against helplessness. It's against complicity. I think absurdism. These playwrights used the absurd to really break down all of these kinds of social conventions, uh, you know, associated with with sort of bourgeois normativity, and make people think about the sort of everyday actions and habits that we take for granted. For example. In the context of our own society, when I see something that simulta- that strikes me as simultaneously unjust and absurd, what am I going to do? Am I going to tweet about it? Am I going to get a lot of likes on Facebook for like you know my pithy insult among people who already agree with me anyway? Mm. I think good absurdism makes me confront the extent to which my own behavior, you know, whether it's it's uh, a tweet or whatever, you know, other thing I'm doing to confront injustice that doesn't really get at the, the root cause of injustice, um, how that itself is a form of complicity in this, this, this paralyzingly corrupt and unequal system. Unleashing the mid-century theater of the absurd would potentially be a, well, a way of helping us imagine how our own everyday habits, behaviors, social media culture are really core to the system itself that elected Donald Trump. I think there are lots and lots of changes that need to take place on our in, in our society. Some are political, some are s- systemic, mm. and some just involve reinventing our own everyday habits. And what, getting out and voting, for example? Voting would be great. Yeah. I, I was really uh, inspired by how many people voted in this off-year off election. I mean, I voted here in the local mayoral and city council races, and it was unprecedented, the turnout here mm. uh, for an off-year off election. Vote, you know, donate to nonprofits, be, be an activist, show, out, show up for the protests. And, you know, just think about how all of our actions, whether it's the, the way we use social media, the way we could potentially but don't use social media, the, the things we could be doing but for one reason or another make an excuse not to, how all of our actions have ramifications down the road. You know, Trump didn't get elected overnight. Uh, the system that allowed him to win the election had been sort of changing in incremental, unseen ways over many, many years. Any specific titles you want to give us? The Bald Soprano by Ionesco. That's one of my favorite absurdist plays. There's um, a book called Are Women People? Question mark by Alice Dewar Miller. You can read it online. It's uh, She was a suffragette writing in the early 20th century in 19-teens, a book of rhymes for suffrage times. And that's one of my favorite examples of feminist satire to just expose the sheer illogic of anti-suffragette arguments in the 20th century. That's another fine example that I recommend everyone take a look at Good. by Alice Dewar Miller. Great. Thanks so much for sharing your thoughts on this stimulating article that you've written for Flow. It's Flow. Internet called Laughter in the Age of Trump. And I've been speaking with Maggie Hennefeld, Assistant Professor of 
Cultural Studies and Comparative Literature at the University of Minnesota. Thanks very much. Thank you so much. Okay. Really my pleasure.